Hallelujah. Welcome to Church Riverhouse. How are we doing tonight? Who has joy in their heart that the world didn't give and the world can't take away? How about you just stand with me? Let's just pray. Lord, we stand in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And we say, Lord, speak to our hearts. Lord, send your spirit and let your words somehow be heard through uh, this, this offering of a message, God, this offering of scripture, this time in this space. Let your words, let your voice, let your spirit be heard. God, we all together and I, Lord, humble myself. We humble ourselves. Say, God, we give you the instruments of our ears. I give you the instrument of my mouth. And we say, Lord, let your sound be heard. Let your voice resound from heaven. And may we all come into an awareness of God in this place tonight. We pray that in the name of Jesus. And say amen with me if you believe it. Amen. Come on. Come on. Thank you, Jesus. I have a holy expectation in my spirit for what the Lord wants to, to release tonight. And who was here a couple weeks ago? When I preached, we started talking about these core values that we've expressed in paradox and talked about intimacy and mystery. Who was here a couple weeks ago? It's all right if you weren't. Because there's a podcast. Thank you, God, for podcast. But we're going to continue that journey of looking at how, what language God has given for us to even understand the expression of his grace that he's discipling us into here at Riverhouse. And I'm going to... Uh, we focused talking about intimacy um, the couple weeks ago, and, and tonight I'm going to veer more into mystery, and I'm not going to try to solve a paradox for you because paradox isn't something to be solved. Paradox is something to be wrestled with. So I'm just going to leave you in some sort of tension because Christianity, paradox is at the very center of this whole Christianity thing. In case you haven't noticed, we die to live as Christians, can I get an amen from somebody? So we're not going to escape paradox, and paradox isn't solved. It's something that we wrestle with. It's something that we gaze through to behold a greater glimpse into God. But before we, we jump specifically into talking about the mystery of God, which is something I think is so vitally important to who we are as Christians, I'm actually going to spend about half the time just again introducing why paradox. Can you say that? Why paradox? Say, why did it, well, again, why paradox? It's a great question. It's a really great question. Why paradox? So I want to talk about why paradox. I'm going to spend maybe 20 minutes or so answering that question, and then that's going to segue into the mystery of God. And I, I believe it won't just be word, but it will be spirit and truth tonight, and we'll actually come into an experience of God's presence together. Amen. So if you're taking notes, uh, this might be a good night to take notes. And I'm going to share a few things that I think will be important to perhaps write down and then be able to dwell upon. Uh, there's some things in the life of God that require more meditative thought that uh, the picture I get often is like a, a cow chewing the cud who just loves chewing cud. You know, it's a great picture, but they eat the grass, they swallow the grass, they regurgitate it and chew it again, and they swallow it into the next stomach, and they regurgitate it and they chew it again. There's just things in God that require a little regurgitation. You can write that down. I'm joking. Don't write that down. That's a terrible quote. I don't want to get Facebook famous for regurgitation. You know what I mean? So I want to talk about the power of paradox and then segue into the mystery of God. So 
there's two things, two aspects of what paradox does. And again, just to define paradox simply, it's when truth is contained within two opposing ideas. So there's a lot of tension in paradox. A really classic paradox that we will never fully solve is the justice of God and the mercy of God. There's so much tension between these two things, and yet we know that God is absolutely just and righteous, and Jesus was the only one that didn't have a stone to condemn this woman thrown at his feet with adultery. He was the only one righteous that could throw the stone, but he was the only one that wasn't willing to throw the stone. How can we solve this? You can't. You just have to look through it and behold a God. That's not us. That's bigger than us. So that's a paradox. It's when truth is held within two opposing ideas. Paradox, I want to talk about two ways God uses paradox. He First, he uses paradoxes to guide us, say guide. Paradox guides us into deeper knowledge of God, into true knowledge of God. And paradox also guard, say guard. They guard us from deception. So God uses paradoxes to guide us into true knowledge of him and to guard us from deception. You're ready to jump into this. So let's talk about paradox as a guide. So paradox is used to disciple us into deeper places of knowing Jesus. How? It's a good question. How? Uh, we're going to answer this. Uh, I actually, I wanted to read this first because I, th- I found this quote and I thought it was funny. A.W. Tozer's saying that Christians are weird, essentially. He, in, in a little older language, he says Christians are an odd number. But this, this, uh, th- this is what he says. He says, a real Christian empties himself in order to be full, admits he's wrong so he can be declared right, goes down in order to get up, is strongest when he's weakest, richest when he's poorest, happiest when he feels the worst. He dies so he can live, forsakes in order to have, gives away so he can keep, sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows that which passes knowledge. Come on. Why paradox? We can't escape paradox. We will find ourselves in one of those. Who finds themselves in one of those right now? Is anybody dying to live right now? Is anybody being told to give away something that you want to keep? Does anybody feel like they want to go up, but God's calling you down? It's a backwards form of promotion, if you ask me. You know God's promoting you whenever things are going wrong and you're getting humbled in your life and you're under tons of spiritual attack. Can I get an amen, somebody? All right, we're a weird group of people is what that means. So back to my question, how does paradox lead us into a deeper place of God? It does this because it bids us to explore deeper places inside of us that our mind is not able to comprehend. And when we have a confrontation with the paradox, we inevitably start to understand that my mind can't take me where my spirit's being drawn to go. So paradox has an innate way, has this ability woven into them that it brings alignment to our lives because we start to recognize that my mind has to submit to my spirit when it comes to this one. I can't untie the knot of this thing. It's beyond my mental comprehension. So it requires my spirit, my heart to get involved. And one of the things that paradox does very intentionally is it confronts the pride of Western intellectualism. Come on. It confronts the pride of Western intellectualism. Paradoxes serve as an alarm clock that essentially say, wake up and recognize that there are parts of this life that are very mysterious and they're beyond your understanding. There's a theologian named John Leith And and he says this. I think it's a powerful quote. He says that Western civilization's success at solving problems has been the source of a temptation to believe not only that all problems can be solved, but also that life itself can be understood and handled as a problem. 
Western civilizations, we are so good at problem solving. Has anybody been to New York City recently? I look at those towers and I'm like, how did we do it? You know, there was one time I was driving to school. So I had to drive to San Diego and I was going through the Death Valley. And these two F-16s buzzed me. You know what I mean by buzzed? It's when, you know, uh, Navy pilots think it would be fun to mess with some kid driving to college. And they just over my truck and my whole truck's like shaking like this. I thought a bomb went off, man. And then I look up and I see these two hunks of steel just whoosh. And I literally sat there and I said, how did we do that? Like, could you imagine 2,000 years ago if you would have seen that? You would have been like, that's an alien. <laughs> like, we're incredible at problem solving. But that success at problem solving actually can become a source of pride that tempts us to think that everything can be solved. That life itself is a problem that can be understood. That's a problem. If you think life is a problem that can be understood, that's a problem. Because there is a mystery to life. We don't actually know, like, really where we came from. Like, I'm, I believe Genesis. But I'm saying, like, nobody has an eyewitness account. Somewhere, like, is it 30 generations? Is it 300 generations? Is it 3,000 generations? Like, we just, we don't really know. So we put faith in Scripture, but we don't understand. We know there's a billion stars in the galaxy and at least a billion galaxies in the universe, but we, we don't understand. Paradox intrudes into this Western intellectualism and it says, no, there are problems you'll never understand. There are mysteries to this life you can never know. So it confronts this Western pride. What do you mean? We are enlightened scientific Creatures that can solve anything. Sounds like the Tower of Babel. Just doesn't work. There's many aspects of life that can't be explained and they can't be understood by the mind. If we give in to this temptation to view life as a problem that can be understood, that's a fast track to see awe and wonder vanish. Because if life is a problem that can be understood, I can learn how to understand it. I can become competent and competency leads to mastery. And when you become a master, you're surprised by nothing. Life becomes robotic, becomes routine, routinized, cold, dry, calculated. This may, let me just put a story on this. I take my little girl for walks all the time. She's one today. Happy birthday, Nay. I, I take her for walks. I take her for walks. Partly is because it gives mom a break. I can pray. But the reason that I can pray on the walks is because she's so captivated by wonder. She hardly says a word. Sometimes I have to stop and like make sure she's okay. And she's just wide-eyed. The birds, the river, the sky, the trees, the dogs, the whatever it is. She is so captivated by the wonder of the world. And as I've seen her with such wonder, it's confronted me that I'm not full of wonder often when I'm going on walks. I'm often trying to process through problems and situations and things in the church and my life and my ministry and finances and this. And I'm anything but wonderful, <laughs> full of wonder. So I'm looking at her and it's easy, right? The temptation would be, well, she doesn't understand life. I do. She doesn't understand the river. I understand that the river's made because the rain falls and then it becomes snow and there's a glacier and it melts and Lucky Peak sits full and they open the lever on Lucky Peak so that the river can, like I, I understand. I understand a lot more than her, right? She's childish, I'm enlightened. She's full of wonder because she's just a little girl. I'm a master of life. She's an apprentice at life. But if you layer back maybe a little deeper, you get to the truth that neither one of us really understand life. Neither one of us really understand the way things work. Yes, we have scientific theory. Yes, we understand anatomy and biology. And yes, I understand more of life than she does. But perhaps Naomi's just more aware 
of how much she doesn't understand than I am. So who is operating out of a higher wisdom? We should be growing both in knowledge and an awareness of how much we don't understand as we get older. But often in this Western intellectualism, the opposite's true. Yes, we become less full of wonder and awe as we get older because we start to view life more as something that we understand. But God in his mercy makes us these odd company called Christians that die to live, go down to go up. He gives us paradoxes that we can't understand, that we can't become masters of. Come on, somebody. This is good. There's a quote, we can put it by Richard Hansen. He, he wrote a book that my, uh, my spiritual director, my mentor gave me called Paradox Lost, Rediscovering the Mystery of God. That's a great book if you want to go deeper into this. But this is a quote from, from Richard. He says, while the appropriate response to problems is study, hard work, and the application of techniques, the appropriate response to mystery is awe and wonder. Once solved, problems can be handled by anyone who learns the correct formula or technique. No formula can be passed from person to person to solve a mystery, however. Mystery confronts each of us uniquely and invites exploration rather than mastery. Mystery is inexhaustible. The more mystery is recognized, the more mysterious and wondrous it becomes. So I want to say this emphatically. You can write this down. Paradox is not a problem to solve, but a window we look through to behold a holy, awesome, and mysterious God. The more we engage with paradox, the more we get stuck in the tension of it. But we see through what it offers and we behold God. Paradox actually keeps us from making God in our image and it humbles us to come under God in his image. Because once we master something, we start to define the space. But Jesus calls us not to be masters, but to be disciples, apprentices who behold and become like him. And paradox it, we can't control what we can't understand. So Jesus stands outside of our ability to comprehend, but yet somehow still invites us to know. <laughs> You're going to have to think so much about this. Just remember, chew the cud. Chew the cud. You're going to have to listen to this a couple times. All right, paradox actually offers us an alternative vision of mastery which Jesus is so wonderful at articulating when he says the kingdom of God belongs to children. He's actually telling us what masters look like in the way of Jesus. Those that are full of awe and wonder, that's a sign of mastery. It's a sign of knowledge and the awareness and recognition of mystery. This is why you have spiritual giants, a spiritual master, you could say, St. Francis, who referred, the older he got, he referred to himself more and more as a little one, as a little child. At the height of his influence and spiritual authority, he would call himself a lowly child. Because we're an odd number. We go down to go up. We become a child to become a master. Paradox guides us into true knowledge of God, which is the knowledge of the heart. That we would, as Ephesians 3 says, come to know what is surpassing knowledge. Come on. Deep breath. Paradox guides us, amen? 
Paradox also guards us. It guards us from deception. Uh, You can put the next quote. It's by a Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volf. And before I read this, I just want to preface and say this is probably one of the most important things that I have come across in the last few years of my life. I believe that this quote is so potent. So I just want you to just sit on this with me for a couple moments. Uh, Miroslav is writing these words as he's reflecting upon what he had just witnessed in his nation of Croatia, which was that Serbian fighters had just come through their country, pillaged their towns and cities, raped their women, and murdered many. So he has just witnessed atrocity by a perpetrating nation into his own land. And these are his thoughts. He says, my thought was pulled in two different directions by the blood of the innocent crying out to God and by the blood of God's lamb offered for the guilty. I am divided between the God who delivers the needy and the God who abandons the crucified, between the demand to bring about justice for the victims and the call to embrace the perpetrator. I knew, of course, of easy ways to resolve this powerful tension, but I also knew that they were easily, precisely because they were false. So let's just put ourselves in his shoes for a moment. Think of the emotions and the the trauma he's experienced, but the agony as he's letting himself be torn be, be bound, be, be humbled by this cry for the justice of God for his people. But then also the cry of Jesus saying, forgive them from the cross. And, and these words are what struck me because I think these words are human words. This is a human experience that he's distri- describing. But he says, I knew, of course, of easy ways, say easy. I knew of easy ways to resolve this powerful tension, but I also knew that they were easy precisely because they were false. Jesus gives us an easy yoke, not an easy way. The way of Jesus is hard, but the yoke of Jesus is easy. These easy ways have a name. These easy ways that can cut the cord of the tension and allow us to make compromise for the sake of the, where we lean, right? Because we all have a leaning when it comes to the confrontation of paradox. We may lean towards mercy. We may lean towards justice. But if we're truly going to humble ourselves and listen to both the cry for justice and the cry of the blood for the guilty, we have to get rid of ourselves, right? But there's a, there's a name for these easy ways, and the name is ideology. Say ideology. These are, this is what an ideology does. An ideology comes... And it gives an easy way. It offers an easy way out. And the best way that I have heard ideology defined is this. It's when you make a partial truth the entire truth. So think real simple with me. It's when you make one slice of the pie the whole pie. Another way you could define an ideology is it's a false gospel with a false Jesus. So it's a false message of hope, of salvation, and another savior that may look like Jesus, and it may be part of Jesus, but it's not Jesus. It's making a part of it, all of it. That's what an ideology does. We often think of Antichrist. Who's heard of Antichrist? 
uh, most understanding, I think, in the church of Antichrist, and it's not, it's not wrong, it's just not complete, is that Antichrist will be a historical figure that will rise to political power, spiritual power in the days of the eschatological unfolding of the kingdom of God. Scripture tells us this. This is true. But more pertinent in some ways to the last 2,000 years as a whole has been what John says, that the spirit of Antichrist is already here. And what the spirit of Antichrist is, is it's his spirit of deception that is working to try to get people to put their hope in a false Jesus with a false gospel. The spirit of Antichrist is a spirit of deception to get people to call Jesus what isn't Jesus. Who isn't Jesus? And this has been at work for thousands of years in the earth. So, yes, there will be a historical figure that arises on the scene of history at a time that only the Father knows. But the spirit of Antichrist is working every day in our lives, trying to deceive us into putting hope in ideology that is something less than the full counsel, the, the powerful tension of who God is and what his kingdom is. So I'm going to try to put some color on this so you can see it. Right, so Jesus gives an easy yoke, not an easy way. Paradox disciples us into the easy yoke of Jesus, but it serves to safeguard us so that we can start to recognize ideologies from what is pure. Okay? So let's look at a really profound picture of ideology in the scripture right in the gospel, actually right at the crucifixion. This would be Good Friday. And there's this very fascinating, nuanced scene where Jesus is standing with Pilate and Pilate is standing at the seat of judgment. He brings out Jesus and he brings out a man named Barabbas. Who's heard Barabbas before? So what you may not know, depending on what translation of the Bible you read, is that Barabbas' name was also Jesus. Jesus Barabbas and Jesus Christ right next to each other. This story is included because it's discipling us into the understanding of the kingdom of God versus ideology. And we're going to see that Jesus Barabbas is actually a figure who is personifying a political ideology of Jesus's day. Okay, so watch me here. So Pontius Pilate puts Jesus Barabbas and Jesus Christ before the Jews. We know the story. There's this trade. Who do you want me to release to you? And what we read is that Jesus Barabbas is a murderer. Have you read this before? Come on, somebody. We're reading the word. We need to get the word in us. You get the word in you. The word comes out of you in power in ways that you don't know. So Jesus Barabbas, he's not just a murderer. He's a political insurrectionist. So he's not a murderer like we think, like, man, that guy's a thug. He was probably carrying heat. No, Jesus Barabbas would have been someone in D.C. He was a murderer. He didn't murder Jews. He most likely murdered Romans. Jesus Barabbas had an ideology. It was this, use brute force and violence to liberate Israel from Roman occupation to bring the kingdom of God. So we're seeing two gospels being presented before the Jewish people by Pontius Pilate. Here's Jesus Barabbas and his message, or you can have Jesus who calls himself the Christ. Two gospels, two kingdoms. Jesus' kingdom, right? Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas, we know his message. It was, it was what I just said, a, a political insurrectionist. The way of Jesus isn't quite so easy. Right? The way of Jesus and the kingdom he was manifesting was far more powerful, mysterious, and provocative than the kingdom and the gospel of Jesus Barabbas. Jesus' kingdom was not of this realm, yet it was breaking into Israeli towns and villages. The kingdom of Jesus Christ was working to liberate Israel from Roman occupation, but it was through healing and deliverance, not violence and destruction. The kingdom of Jesus was calling, it was confronting evil, 
in Rome, but also in the heart of the Jews themselves. <laughs> this, is, this isn't easy. The kingdom of Jesus was calling the Jews to nonviolent uh, protest. And even further was calling the Jews to love their enemies and pray for those who persecuted them. And that wasn't an abstract thought when he preached that. He was saying, I'm calling you to love the Romans and pray for the Romans. Which one was easier? Which, which gospel? We're still trying to understand the kingdom of God. This was straightforward. Two gospels, two Jesuses. And who do the Jews choose? Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. What did it cost them? They had to compromise something. You always have to compromise something when you choose ideology. What you have to compromise is righteousness. You have to compromise an aspect of righteousness for the aspect that you agree with. We'll say, we'll compromise justified violence as long as we get liberation because that's an aspect of the kingdom, is it? Yes. Liberation from oppression is a manifestation of the kingdom of God. But in order to choose Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas, you have to then consciously shove down the compromise of murder and justified violence. This is where ideology gets us. We think of Satan, he is the father of lies, yes? And we think of that often as you're worthless, you're dirty, you're a sinner, you're not worth anything, right? He lies to us at an individual level. Who's had healing? And you realize I've been believing all these lies, but I think we fail sometimes to step back and recognize that he's also authoring ideal, ideologies that are contending with the message of the gospel. And he's actually giving birth to narratives that are shaping society and narrative and culture at a macroeconomic level. There's ideologies that are living in the world that are evil. But they're scarier to me because we're blind to them. Just give us Barabbas. I think of ideology. The ocean waves are the lies at the personal level. Ideologies are the ocean currents that will move you miles without realizing it, but are undetected to your own eye. This is often how ideology works. So the Jews chose Barabbas because Barabbas gave them an easy way, but the easy way also gives a heavy yoke. It was a yoke of slavery and their justified violence manifested upon Jesus. He became the object of justified violence. Ideology in the end will always persecute Jesus. We may think it's promoting him, but in the end, it will persecute his way. Jesus' way is an easy yoke with a heavy cross. And a life of purity will always be costly because it will convict the world on all fronts. Because we cannot pick and choose righteousness. We are righteous as he is righteous. We stand for the righteousness in Miroslav Volf's words, the righteousness of the victimized. But we also stand for the righteousness of the blood that Jesus shed for the perpetrators. If you let go of either side, you are, you're giving yourself to something less than the gospel of the kingdom. This is powerful tension that we're talking about tonight. This is deep. This is something we have to chew on. We have to let it edify us. We have to let it build us up. This is what paradox does. It breaks down the flesh. 
And it forces us to come under and be built up by the Spirit so that we have the fortitude to engage in a world that is hook, line, and sinker buying into false gospels with false Jesuses. And stand as a prophetic people that have the courage to say, no, I'm going to confront this and this. I'm going to call us to righteousness as he's righteous. I'm going to make you a little more uncomfortable for a second. Are you okay with that? I want to modernize this because Jesus Barabbas is still here today. There are political ideologies that are different than 2,000 years ago, but that are no less pressing in the world today. And I'm really just going to open a can of worms that hopefully we'll get to later in the year, honestly. Uh, I, I, and, and Lord, help me not be too messy. It won't be. I love you all. He loves us. But I just want to say this. The kingdom of God cannot be housed in left or right politic in this nation. To do so to do so and to claim this after what we're witnessing in our world is the manifestation of ideology, which again is making the part the whole. I'm not going to name names, but I'm just going to give you just as, as an example that this is something I actually empathize with. And, but this is a prominent Christian leader who in 1998 stood as a prophetic voice in our nation in light of the Bill Clinton sexual scandal. And he called, this is, he was a prominent, prominent. I've, this is someone I've quoted from this pulpit, someone that is, a pow, I respect this man deeply. He called, stood as a prophetic voice in 1998 and said, he, he, he publicly called for Clinton's removal from office, that he would resign even if he wouldn't be impeached and called all Americans, these are his words, to embrace and act on the conviction that character does count in public office and to elect officials and candidates who, although imperfect, demonstrate consistent honesty, moral purity, and the highest character. He stood as a prophetic voice, and I think he's absolutely right. What we allow leaders to do gives license to the rest of culture to follow. And what Clinton did, we all know, was wrong, and how it was handled was wrong. And the Me Too movement that came out in the last decade has probably helped right some of those wrongs. But how American society handled 1998 said it's okay to shove stuff like this under the rug. But in 2020, the same man endorsed Donald Trump, who we know slept with a prostitute after the birth of his child and paid her hush money to keep it quiet. A moral outrage that makes Bill Clinton look small in comparison. Why? Ideology. In this case, the rights of the unborn, manifestation of the kingdom. But is it the whole pie? Can Donald Trump really be associated with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I say this with empathy in my heart because we have all walked the same story. Give us Barabbas. Paradox. If we will humble ourselves, God can do a work in the spirit that can strengthen us so that we can operate and function in the midst of powerful tensions. I am not trying to solve the problem of American politic. I'm simply advocating and trying to bring awareness that it is a powerful tension, very similar to what Miroslav Volf is talking about. We're, we have to wrestle and come into our smallness and let him do a work on the inside that somehow equips us to engage with what seems like impossible situations in a way that prophesies the kingdom of God. We're not going to solve it. But I believe it's actually our willingness to wrestle with God because the greater tension than right or left or Croatians. Serbian conflict is the tension of knowing God himself.
the vastness of who he is, if we'll be a people that wrestle with and come to know him, all this actually becomes a cakewalk. This is why Jesus could jump into basically every polarity of his day and open a new way. She's like, this is easy. I know God. You think this is tough. He's justice and mercy. He's free will and predestination. Yeah. Jesus uses paradox to expose and uproot ideologies and then leads us to the truth. And the truth has the power to liberate us from the inside. Amen? Oh, man, that was a longer introduction than I was. <laughs> we didn't get into the paradox for tonight. Let, let, let me just... Let me just touch on this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut this a little short, a lot short. This is. We talked about intimacy two weeks ago. This is this is the the paragraph we we crafted. Of intimacy and mystery. God desires to be known by us. His dream is holy union with His people. Like marriage, man and woman sharing in the beauty and vulnerability of sacred companionship. So Christ loves the church, his bride. God is not distant. Rather, he exposes his heart and pursues man relentlessly to see his dream fulfilled. Intimacy. At the same time, God is infinite and boundless. A cloud of unknowing, seated above and beyond comprehension. In all our knowing of his holy nature... Like pioneers forging a great frontier, we are continuously exposed to all we do not know, understand, or have ability to explain. He is inexhaustible mystery. Is it good if I go like 10 more minutes? If it's not, I just put you in an awkward spot. And, and, and truly, if you need to slip out, you can slip out, and there's no shame in that. There's a lot of tension between intimacy and mystery. Intimacy is close familiarity or friendship, closeness, knowledge of a subject. That's the definition. The definition of mystery is a person or thing whose identity or nature is puzzling or unknown, something impossible to understand or explain. Intimacy is cultivated through communication. Spend time with Justin and Tisha. They'll teach you about that. Communication is how you cultivate intimacy. And mystery is beyond language. In fact, trying to explain mystery, you will reach the boundaries of our language. So it's beyond language. Intimacy is warm, safe, light, beautiful. Mystery is vast, awesome, and opaque. I think of John leading on the Lord's chest at the Last Supper, and then John falling like a dead person at Jesus' feet on the island of Patmos. I think of the disciples eating a fish breakfast with the Lord, and then crying out on the Galilee as the ghost is passing by. Intimacy and mystery. We experience real intimacy with Jesus and abiding with him, as we talked about two weeks ago, is the source of all fruitfulness in life. We may only see in a mirror dimly, but we see. It's real. We come into real knowledge of God. And at the same time, Jesus is an inexhaustible mystery, which means we'll be exploring him for all eternity and still getting to know who he is, which means that right now, tonight, there are aspects of the nature of Jesus that we have little or no knowledge of. And if we were exposed to them, we would most likely be surprised and disturbed. Say, so I didn't have you quite penned the way I thought you were. How can you be so close? 
and yet at any moment could be so utterly shocked. Jesus is perfectly similar to us and completely alien at the same time. Fully man, fully God. Here's what I really want to talk about because it links to the, the whole message of what we just introed is this, this line. In all our knowing of his holy nature, like pioneers forging into a great frontier, we are continually exposed to all that we do not know, understand, or have ability to explain. I've heard this phrase of the idea of conscious, conscience ignorance. Conscious ignorance. Say that, conscious ignorance. This is a powerful idea to help us understand the mystery of God. Is that as we grow in knowledge of God, we also become conscious of how ignorant we are of God at the same time. Think of this. Think of if this front row was this forest. And let's think like a Lord of the Rings gnarly forest. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe there's orcs in there. Who knows? Right? Just this gnarly, mysterious forest. So I could stand right here, and maybe I could even stand up here to get a little higher to see how, how big this thing is, right? But I make the decision that I'm going to go into this forest. So I start walking into this forest, and as I'm walking into this forest, with each step, I'm seeing more of the forest, and it's beautiful, and it's amazing, and there's like parts of it that I didn't see before. But also with each passing step, I see pieces of the forest in my peripherals that I realize as I'm walking this direction, I'll probably never see that direction. And imagine that an hour or two hours passes, and I'm now 10 miles into this forest. I have now gained real knowledge of this forest, right? I know I know what the forest is like. I'm not on the outside. I have real intimacy with this forest. But I've also seen way more of how vast and massive and how much of it I don't know because of what I've come to know. Conscious ignorance. I have grown in knowledge and ignorance at the same time. This is the mystery of God. The mystery of God isn't this abstract thing that's like God just this mysterious thing. No, he is mysterious, but we know him. But the more we know him, the more mysterious he becomes. Because whatever direction I go, it's inexhaustible. Or another image that I have found, I've meditated on this for years. This has been my story is, it's like God's inviting me into this store and it's the season and maybe it's a three-year season and he's teaching me his holiness and it's like this mountain and I'm like, that's the peak, man. That is the peak of all these peaks. And we're on this journey and we're climbing this thing and there's valleys and there's days you wanna give up, right? That's why we need endurance. Can I get an amen, somebody? Right, And you're in the valley, but you're like, no, I know there's a peak. And then you're working your way up. And it might be months, it might be years. But with sweat coming down your brow, you are starting to summit this peak. And you're convinced this thing's Mount Everest. In fact, that's, you know it is. You've actually never even asked yourself if this is Mount You know it. This is why I paid the price. This is why I've gone. This is my story. This is the scripture. This is this, is this. this is that. I'm, I'm about to ascend. I'm summiting this. And you get to the top of this peak and you have a moment of pure bliss and horror simultaneously. Bliss because you did it and you feel that I have walked this path and I now know, I have experienced a knowing, I know the holiness of God. And then horror because you look to the horizon and as far as you can see is mountains beyond mountains. And it horrifies you because you know what it took for me to just get here. 
And now I got to go down and back higher. And isn't our life with God like that? It's mountains beyond mountains. We have to resist the temptation of trying to say we've got our thumb on who God is. Because we don't. <laughs> We're at the beginning of the beginning. And what ideologies do is they try to don't look at the horizon. Just make your camp here. This is all of it. And instead of conscious ignorance, it's conscious denial. And so you see it. We're just going to, this is it. You're threatened by anything new. We must resist, again, emphatically, the temptation to proclaim or even to think that we have God nailed down and figured out. Even when summiting what we believe to be the highest peak of revelation, when the mist and clouds clear away, we will discover an endless horizon of mountains beyond mountains. There is no Mount Everest with God. He is unsearchable, inexhaustible mystery. I want to say this before I close. I want to clarify that opening to the mystery of God is not suggesting that we abandon orthodox beliefs in exchange for some sort of intellectual universalism where like everything goes and God can be defined however we want to define him. That's, that's, that's not, that's losing the tension of this paradox. God can be known and he is known. There are things we know in the scripture Right? There are core fundamental doctrines that have been handed down throughout the history of the church that are true. God is a holy trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus became a human being, born of a virgin, yet was fully God, the incarnation. We're saved by grace and not by works. We inherit salvation through the blood of Jesus. Core doctrines. You miss these, you're in, you're in error, you're in heresy. But, but check this, the paradox is we don't possess the mental faculties to understand the Trinity. How is God three in one? The incarnation, oh my gosh. How God's grace and our free will commingle. <laughs> was it him or was it you? And lastly, how exactly does the blood justify us? Absolute, unwavering, orthodox truths, and yet mountains beyond mountains, even in those. God is not an abstract mystery. He's a mystery that we can come to know. Amen? I'm going to end with this. Let's put it on the screen. It's a quote by Karl Barth. Karl Barth, Karl Barth, depends how you want to say it. I love this. It says, God remains a mystery even as he reveals himself. For it is as a mystery that he is revealed. Our Christian situation is not that of ignorance or not knowing alone. It is the predicament of knowing what we do not know and of calling mystery by its right name, God. Will you stand with me? Lord, I thank you that you are an inexhaustible mystery. You know, I know the kids are coming in, but I just, I want to just maybe invite you to just take a deep breath and to actually just be present right now with God in this moment. We can put the lights down a little bit. We're going to play a little bit of music and I just want to create a space to breathe and to open. Lord, I just, I ask for your refreshing presence right now.
you know, I want to invite you to just take a deep breath and to open your hands, to just say to God, I open to you. Lord, I know there was a lot that uh, was released tonight. But I just ask, Lord, for the sense of your reassuring presence right now. You know, I, I don't really feel like I'm supposed to touch this place very much other than uh, uh, to just create a space for anybody that if you would, you, you, you could come forward. If you, It's almost the picture I have is that you would come and you would look at this horizon of, of mountains beyond mountains. And rather than be afraid, it's like the Lord would just... Um, give a sense of peace that it's okay to let him take you to places that you haven't been before. Um, a sense of openness that it's okay to let the Holy Spirit challenge beliefs and, 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 and let you wrestle with things that maybe you thought were simple and rock solid, but to almost let go of that for the the mystery of God. It's almost like there's just a letting go and trusting yourself that, that God is mystery. It's, it's similar. It's like a moment where um, in Chronicles of Narnia where Lucy is asking, is, she's heard all these stories about Aslan. Like, is he, is he safe? And uh, the fawn replies and said, he's not safe, but he's good. And I just feel like I'm supposed to edify some in this room tonight and remind you that Jesus is not safe. He is working on you. He's, he's willing to challenge everything in our lives. He loves us so much. He won't stop till we become righteous, but he's good. The mystery of God's not safe, but it's good. And I just, I don't know. I have a sense there's almost a bubbling up in some, in, inside of some of you. And I just want to create a space that you can respond. You can, it's almost like you're just, there's a letting go that you don't even understand right now. And it's as if your spirit is wanting to yield in a way that your head's like, I don't know what's happening. And I want to invite you to come and kneel if that's you. Um, I have a sense that there's some people that it'd be really easy to walk out and you're not one. You're like, I'm not the person to come and kneel. And maybe you've never even done that before, but I just, I want to encourage you to, to do that. If the Holy Spirit's working on your heart and it's just an opening to the mystery of God, it's coming back to that childlike place that says, I don't understand and I don't have to. And you don't have to be threatened by what you don't understand because Jesus is big enough to keep you safe. So, Lord, I invite the mystery of God that is vast, that is powerful, Lord, that you would just come by your spirit and that you would experience us, you would encounter us in ways that we don't know right now. God, and I ask that you would come with your liberating love and that you would, you would liberate us of, of ideologies, Lord, that you would begin the process of for some to uproot, but for some, it's almost like when, uh, when things, the ground's real hard, you just have to work the ground, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to uproot what needs to be uprooted. So let's just all close. Let's just put our hands on our hearts and uh, we'll just do a soft dismiss. And I know that there's a dinner out, outside in the courtyard. But if you're coming forward, I don't, I don't want you to leave. But let's just all put our hands on our heart and just say, God, soften me. I invite you, Holy Spirit, to, to have your way in me. I invite you, Holy Spirit, to convict me of any form of ideology that I have succumbed to. 
unknowingly and that you'd wash me with the blood tonight. God, I ask that you will liberate me from the inside by the blood of Jesus. And that you will lead us out of any form of deception and into the truth. And we pray that in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.